0: This podcast is made possible by listener support on Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Sam Reads Near-Death Experiences. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You to go sometime. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reads Near-Death Experiences podcast. Thank you for listening today. Just to start out with, I thought I might share something cool that I came across. I was looking through the statistics for uh, the plays on the podcast, and it looks like there is a a large uh, portion of of listeners in Australia, which is really cool that (laughs) there are people on the other side of the world listening uh, to the podcast. And it was quite sizable. I mean, it was the uh, second biggest country on the list, so... Uh, Shout out to Australia. I'd love to visit someday. And speaking of uh, going across the world, you know I often like to find different experiences from different cultures around the world to compare and contrast and see what we can learn about this amazing experience that is possible for mankind. And so today we have one coming from China. Now unfortunately there's going to be a lot... um, a lot that we're going to kinda miss out on because there are a lot of details that are missing from there aren't any questions at the end of the experience. There's not a whole lot of context. And it seems like there's probably quite a bit that that kinda gets lost in translation. It's it's kind of interesting some of the words that are used, and I'm sure that's a consequence of it being translated from Chinese. So there's there's gonna be a bit of a language gap in, in in trying to make sense of it, but I look forward to talking about it nonetheless because it's it's fascinating to to get, you know, an experience from a completely different place. But like I said, we don't have a whole lot of the, well, any of the details about what um, this individual believed or what they thought or, you know, any of their uh, details essentially. So we kind of only have the experience to go on, but nonetheless, it's it's very interesting, so... I'm excited to to share it. I got this from the NDERF.org website and uh, I will share the link in the podcast description. So essentially this experience was caused by a food allergy to uh, seafood fish and and it was just very um, very natural imagery that that it's gonna be fun to explore. So this is uh I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but we'll, we'll just get into it. This is Chen Guan's near-death experience. Let's go back to the day when it happened. We went to lunch after an important conference meeting. The dining table could accommodate 10 people and served more than 10 dishes for each table. Among all the dishes, there was a fish cuisine. I am allergic to seafood since when I was 12 years old and the intensity of being sensitive to it became worse gradually. I was very careful not to eat the fish dish during the lunch that day. However, I began to develop rashes on both arms, neck and head during lunch and they were spreading to my whole body when I got home. Meanwhile, I realized the reason why I had an allergic reaction was because the food that I ate had been cross-contaminated with the fish dish when someone using chopsticks to eat fish and then having other dishes with the same chopsticks. I sat on the couch at home for a while. Slowly, my breathing started deteriorating. It had become so unbearable that I could not sit down, neither could I stand up. Then I went into the bedroom to lie down, hoping I could breathe better in a supine position. Though it did not work, so I tried different positions, Fowler, sim, and prone, but none of them were working. Still, I could barely breathe, and at the same time it felt like my throat was choked by a hand. Instantly, I was split into two. One floated up close to the ceiling, watching another quote me, who looked like she was being hooked on a fishing pole while struggling vainly. Concurrently, my soul had left my body, and I did not know it was a near-death experience at that very moment until after the incident. The one on the bed was despairing. It happened so sudden that my body arched into fetus position, and I thought, I am dying. I couldn't talk due to my lung being enlarged so big to be exploded. Besides the deafened roaring sound, the air also filled with anger. It seemed like my heart, liver, and kidney were disappearing inside of me. Yet my body was still expanding from every muscle to every bond and they were bursting in pains to a degree that I was not sure where the pain was from. My mother walked in to check on me to see if I felt better, but she was shocked when she saw me and yelled to dad and said, hurry up, hurry up. She could not breathe, and her lip had turned purple. I tried very hard to gasp air, but I could not do so. Finally, I fainted. I was piggyback on Dad when we were walking downstairs, and Mother hastily tried to lock the door. I passed out again. It seemed like I was brought to the hospital. I could not open my eyes while I was lying on the hospital bed. However, I knew there were doctors who tried to resuscitate me. One of the middle-aged female doctors screamed, hurry, bring an oxygen tank. There was a young female doctor or a nurse who brought an oxygen tank that was bigger than a fire extinguisher who was rushing back to the ward with the tank. That middle-aged female doctor shouted again, no, not this size, bring the biggest one here. Then there came a cannon-like, tall oxygen tank on a dolly that was wheeled to my bedside and connected it to my pain-free body. I was not sure how long I was unconscious, but suddenly, I was covered with a shield of bright light, and every inch of my body became so soft that they were melted to vanish. I felt as light as a balloon, floating gingerly. This was my second out-of-body episode. I was shapeless, but I could still sense, hear, smell, and touch. I was not aware of how I came back to my body from my prior out-of-body experience, though. While I was hovering, I quietly watched those frantic doctors who tried to save my life. Yet I was indifferent to the quote, body lying on the hospital bed, even though I knew that was me, but it felt like that was someone else. I was detached from her completely, additionally she looked like a wax figure. That middle aged female doctor said, we are losing her, have her family come. As my mom walked into the patient ward, she jumped onto the bed, holding my body, rocking and calling my name out loud. The whole room was filled with her voice that could bring down the ceiling, and the doctors and the nurses had stepped aside. I answered her, yet she could not hear me except that she was still rubbing my body feverishly. At this point, I could not do anything else, then I floated up involuntarily. I was going to hit the ceiling, and I was afraid it might bump my head with the nodule or it would be very painful. To my surprise, the ceiling disappeared unexpectedly. I felt relieved. Then I continued on floating up smoothly. There came another ceiling that made me worried again. But it went away once I reached it. Then I realized that I should not be panicked about the ceilings because I was like a cloud moving freely. The green golden metal frame of hospital windows was making bye-bye noises when I was flying through them at full speed. It was very interesting that all the green golden window frames merged into one piece now I totally forgot about the quote wax figure that was still under resuscitation below me and my desperate mom as well instead my eyes were wide open like a curious young child eventually the hospital had vanished while I was flying away when I was stopped Not knowing how I was stopped unpredictably, an enormous, boundless ocean appeared before me. The ocean was grayish, blue under a sunny day. It was not suppressed, but was subtle, rational, equanimous, and emotionless. The ocean was immense, extensive, emptiness, and still. Its proceeding and receding along the long seashore created pulsating waves leaving a beautiful lace impression. I pondered why I could not hear the sound of waves. Hereafter, I was up a few inches above this quiet ocean. I was bird watching the whole scenery in a preoccupied, timeless, observing, calm, and unemotional mood. Vaguely, I heard Mom calling my name at the other side of the ocean. I answered her, but she could not hear my response. While I was replying to her, I sped up abruptly and my speed had gone faster and faster like an airplane. It might have been more than 10 times of its speed and I watched the clouds that went by quickly. I was not sure how many layers of clouds I had passed through, yet it felt like I flew by thousands of layers of clouds. Suddenly, I stopped in a secure, splendid environment. Although it was not colorful, the light would not hurt your eyes and filled with a feeling of wonderfulness. This place was edgeless. It seemed like it was covered with mists, but not likely to be misty, of where there was nothingness, peopleless, except for soul silence. It was hard to describe the warmth and coziness. I strolled along, extremely relaxed. I loafed through the whole day like a fop. After I walked around for a while, I felt like I should sit down, and immediately there was a sensation where a chair was under me, so I sat on it. In reality, there was not a solid chair. Besides, it felt like I was on a comfortable chaise lounge. Then I was lying on it instead of sitting down and man, it was marvelous. Its warmth embraced thousands, thousands of staggering layers of harmonic colors. I had no choice but to be immersed deeply in this affability. I was enjoying the pleasure that I had never experienced before. However, when it came to the blissfulness, yet it was not quite as you thought about it, because it had a magnificent and soft vibe of ease Additionally, it felt like you were soaked in an aroma wine, sunken, 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 that I never wanted to get up and leave. No time and space, no exuberances, no worrisome, thoughtless, no right and wrong, only the unlimited expansion and euphoria. Melodic music emerged from afar, which it was the most delightful music that I ever heard easy, lovely, and mellow. I listened to it carefully and would like to sing along with it. Nevertheless, the whole piece had not finished yet. Instantly, the chair below me went missing. I began to fall down, and I screamed out loud, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. But it was completely futile. The descending speed was the same as when I was ascended, where I went through the multi-layer clouds, where every cubicle was thousands of miles in size. I saw every layer of cloud was mixed with white and colorful soft-shaped building panels as I passed by them. I didn't want to end up going back, so I cried, I don't want to go back. Along halfway through, then I realized that the situation was irreversible now. I sighed. I had descended close to the ground, but a few inches up in the air, then I stopped incidentally. Once again, I was drifting above the same ocean. The ocean was still, calm and quiet. I stared at the ocean mindlessly, forgetting about the unwilling falling back that just happened prior, I only gazed at it without desire. Subsequently, I found out the allergy had spread to my lungs and caused an edema that resulted in breath difficulty and finally in suffocation. According to medical definition, I was on the edge of death but was brought back through resuscitations. Personally, I experienced my soul had given up and left my body. But because of mom's strong will, so my soul, re-entering into my flesh, came back alive at last. The forceful descent was due to Mom's persevering determination to pervade. If it was not for her crazy persistence, calling out my name, I probably would have stayed in the other realm. Consequently, my body would have deteriorated. The ocean meant a lot to me. Many years later, I still don't understand why the same ocean had appeared in both my NDEs. What does it mean? What message was intended to convey to me? I had experienced a spiritual awakening in 2012, and also it had something to do with the ocean as well. As I learned more about consciousness, I had come to understand that the ocean is a metaphor. We are in an ocean of consciousness, and even more we are the ocean of which the ancients named it, the Sea of Sex. Okay, so that was Guan's near-death experience. And it was really incredible to read. I guess I should start off by uh, lamenting that I don't speak Chinese. I think that there's probably a lot of context and, and ways of describing her experience that, that don't quite translate over from from the original la- language. And, and, you know i think that's fairly natural i mean every language uses different metaphors and and similes and and figurative language to try and describe different situations and so uh, it's it's really a pity that we we aren't able to i don't know fully understand what she was not understand but fully get the full picture of of what she was trying to describe due to the fact that it's been translated. And and for the most part, I mean, there were very interesting kind of ways that she described things, which have all of of these different associations. Like, for, for instance, she mentioned that when she was looking out uh, at the ocean that she was bird-watching, which there weren't any birds, but I think that's probably a translational thing where it's, I guess, some kind of verb in Chinese that describes probably just passively kind of uh, <laughs> uh, viewing your environment or taking in nature or, or some sort of thing. And so, and another thing I noticed was that she she mentioned that she was several inches above uh, the surface of the ocean. I, I imagine that's probably a different. Uh, unit of measurement not exactly inches but uh, in the translation it became uh, they for whatever reason they said inches unless she was like you know just barely hovering above the ocean but uh, from, i take it that she probably was was a bit higher than than an inch so it 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 kind of sucks that the, we we don't <laughs> we we aren't able to fully grasp the intricacies and the complexities and and the nuances that that she must have had in her description of of what she went through but nevertheless it was still absolutely fascinating to, to go through and to, to read so so yeah there's there's quite a, a lack of context there are, are no uh, question and answers at the end of the experience that we we can sometimes rely on to give us more info. So, you know, we don't know when this happened or, or when or, you know, how old Ching Guan was and anything about her really. So really all we have to talk about and and to really um, discuss is is the actual content of the experience. And this is something I mentioned in the in the previous episode as well, that it's I have this feeling that if, if we could know everything about a person who had a near-death experience, it would probably make make reading the experience itself probably a lot more connected, and 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 we'd be able to make it would probably make more sense in a way, since we we don't have the details of of anyone's life, you know. Naturally, we can't know everything that's happened, but it would it would give us a greater insight into why people see what they see and what they experience. So that is a limitation, and, and uh, you know, I fully accept that, that we're kind of just really going based on broad strokes, especially in this case. But there are several things that we can talk about um, just based on... on her experience and what she saw and and the way she attempted to to describe it, I think that can tell us a lot about about the experience as such. And and again, this is coming from a, a vastly different culture than a majority of the experiences that I've read thus far on the podcast. There have been a, a couple that have been from from different cultures and um, you know non Western uh, cultures, but. Uh, it this is truly a global uh, global phenomena, it's a human phenomena and and by looking at it from all these different cultural lenses it can be um, well just a we can get a better grasp of it. So to start off with, the exper- experience began after after she had been exposed to uh, seafood She had an extreme allergy to it and, I guess she she began having a reaction. And so her experience began, I guess she was trying to get comfortable, laying down, trying to breathe, and, and she said that she, suddenly said she was split into two. And one part of herself was floating above, looking down um, at her body, and the other part of herself was struggling to breathe uh, and writhing around and... and an agony. It's very, very hard to to imagine. And but, I I think we can kind of discuss this and, and maybe draw some parallels. There's a uh, passage in my current favorite book on dreams and death by Marie Marie Louise von Franz. It's always fun to say that uh, is. Kind of discuss this split consciousness in a way that I'm I'm going to read, but to start out with, um, I thought I might just draw some some parallels from recent memory. For instance, when uh, in my interview with Paula Lens, she mentioned that she she had a, a near death experience with um, her brother's spirit while she was driving and. And her consciousness went up on this experience. Meanwhile, somehow she was continuing to drive the car. So that is just a a recent example we have of of this kind of split idea of a split consciousness, a consciousness remaining with the body, and and you know controlling the body, and then a more perhaps spiritualized. Uh, consciousness of the soul, uh, so to speak, that that participates in, in you know, I don't know, these profound experiences. So there was one other thing that I thought I might mention. And, you know, I usually don't get into much of the, the actual science of near-death experiences because I don't feel that I'm particularly qualified to talk about that sort of thing. But uh, I thought it might be useful to share something that I had found. I had heard that uh, you know, researchers can essentially trigger an out-of-body experience, so to speak, if they, uh, I guess, stimulated a certain area of the brain. And so I found a, an article in uh, Nature magazine that kind of described it. And I think the article does a pretty good job of, of knowing its boundaries as far as what the science is and, and what it might mean. And I think that's always important because this is just <laughs> just describing one one physical correlation of a, a phenomena. That when someone is having an out-of-body body experience, there's no real way of knowing if this area of the brain is actually being stimulated or if it is or if it's not and and uh, from what I understand it seems like with some near-death experiences there should be no brain activity whatsoever and yet they have some experience and so this is certainly a gray area and not uh, not one that proves anything either way but I thought it would be useful to share it just in, in and you know the spirit of, of wanting to know more about what's going on, at least, uh, perhaps what might be going on in the brain when someone is, uh, well, you know, clearly at this point, Chengguan was still still alive. You know, she was struggling to breathe, but there was uh, this experience began, and so I thought it might be useful to read this real quick. Electrodes trigger out of body experience. By Helen Pearson. Activity in one region of the brain could explain out of body experiences. Researchers in Switzerland have triggered the phenomenon using electrodes. People describe out of body experiences as feeling that their consciousness becomes detached from their body, often floating above it. Because these lucid states are popularly linked with the paranormal, A lot of people are reluctant to talk about them, says neurologist Olaf Blanc of Geneva University Hospital in Switzerland. Blanc found that electrically stimulating one brain region, the right angular gyrus, repeatedly triggers out-of-body experiences. Blanc and his team were using electrodes to excite the brain of a woman being treated for epilepsy. The right angular gyrus integrates visual information, the sight of your body, and information that creates the mind's representation of your body. This is based on balance and feedback from your limbs about their position in space. It makes perfect sense, agrees Peter Bruegger of University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland, who studies the phenomenon. We have representations of our entire body that can be disassociated from our real body, he says. But this is an isolated case, he points out. With gentle stimulation, the woman, who could speak during the operation, felt she was falling or growing lighter. As the intensity increased, she told them, I see myself lying in bed from above. When asked to look at her raised arm, she thought it was coming to punch her. This observation suggests that alien hand syndrome, when people feel that a limb is foreign, or, quote, phantom limbs that people can feel after amputations, could be related to out-of-body experiences, says Blanc. Weird Science Out-of-body experiences are incredibly common, says clinical neurologist John Marshall of the Radcliffe Infirmary in Oxford, UK. Some are part of near-death experiences. Some believe that the events have religious or spiritual causes, or that a person really leaves their physical body behind. They may, for example, interpret them as evidence that the physical and spiritual body can separate again after death. The new experiments cannot disprove such ideas, says Marshall. It doesn't show that people with paranormal beliefs are wrong. It simply demonstrates one way that the experience can be stimulated. Nevertheless, I think it would give great comfort to patients who, he says, frequently question their own sanity thrill-seekers will be hard-pushed to artificially create their own out-of-body experiences, adds Berger. You can't stimulate that precisely without opening up the skull, he says. Okay, so I just thought that would be interesting to share. You know, like I said before, there's, there's no way of knowing exactly how this information maps on to the true experiences of, of those who have had an out-of-body or near-death experience. And like they mentioned in the article, it certainly does not disprove any spiritual and religious aspect of them, which I think is probably the most important thing about them. But nevertheless, I thought it might be useful to share just to know that there could be some physical correlations of of aspects of of these experiences, and and uh, you know, I, I say correlation instead of causation (laughs) quite deliberately that there's we don't really know if what (laughs) how how the experience itself interfaces with with the uh, physical matter of the brain or if and if we do then i i don't know about it and that would be very fascinating to learn but as far as i know there's no uh kind of one-to-one um pairing of 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 whether the brain causes the experience or the experience causes the the brain function, I, I imagine more scientifically inclined people would probably um, talk about the the brain matter itself causing the experience because we have a particular bias, uh, material objective bias that that uh, you know is quite powerful when when practicing science and learning. About the physical world, but I, I don't think that's by any means settled or explained. So, I just thought I would share that as since we're going to be talking about this idea of of, of split consciousness of of a consciousness of the body and a consciousness of the soul, um, which uh, we've run into before in other episodes and is is quite prominent and in, in this. Uh, uh, experience of Qingguan. So, uh, to follow that uh, follow that along, I'm going to read um, uh, a couple pages from *On Dreams and Death*, in which uh, Marie Louise von Franz discusses this kind of split between um, different consciousnesses and um, talks about Chinese conceptions of the soul, uh, which I thought might be. Uh, ap- you know, appropriate in this case, uh, in some degree, I, it's very hard to know exactly. You know, China is a big place, and I don't know where Chengguan came from in in China, and so we're we're talking very, very, very generally here because we we don't have a lot of information. But nevertheless, I I found this passage uh, uh, just very enlightening, and and I think it uh, will be useful for us. So. Although many peoples believe in four, five, or more, up to 13 souls in man, a partition into two is more noticeably widespread. The two are usually a spiritual, free, not quite incarnated soul, and one more attached to the physical body. From the point of view of depth psychology, however, both kinds of souls are aspects of one psychic totality, the self. It seems, therefore, as if the self, the divine center in man, possesses two aspects, one non-incarnated, purely spiritual, timeless, eternal, the other demiurgical, manifesting itself in physical matter. To redeem the latter and reunite it with the eternal aspect depends, according to the alchemists, on the efforts of man. Only with effort can one become completely whole. Seen in this light, the actual resurrection is just this union of the two aspects of the self, a second death marriage. The 13th century alchemist Petrus Bonus described this second union in the following way. In the conjunctional resurrection, the body becomes completely spiritual, like the soul itself, and they become one as when one mixes water with water, since there is no longer any difference between them, but rather a unity of all three, namely of spirit, soul, and body, without separation, in eternity. A very close parallel idea of a duality that must be overcome is found in Taoistic alchemy. Quite generally speaking, the Chinese assumed that when a man died, A bipartition took place first, in which his body-soul, Po, sinks downward, whereas his spirit-like soul, Hun, rises upward. The Po soul dissolves but does not disappear. Its, quote, units just separate but continue to exist as forces, as tendencies ready to take up a new becoming in the, quote, soul of the land or of the earth, which in psychological language means in the realm of the collective unconscious. A kind of spiritual consciousness, on the other hand, is attained in the Hun. This, however, if it is without body, has a tendency to fade away gradually in a second death, unless the individual, during his lifetime, has concentrated so much on his future life that he has built a subtle body around himself a body of thoughts and deeds, of a spiritual kind, which then supports the Hun and protects it from disassociation. On the other hand, whoever has not built for himself such a spirit body is dependent on an ancestor cult among his survivors to be able to continue to exist in order to be incarnated anew among the same kin. Jung observed a similar bipartition in people who faced immediate death. He comments in a letter on the strange change in a dying patient, a woman who seemed to linger on in an ecstasy. Quote, Such a thing is possible only when there is a detachment of the soul from the body. When that takes place and the patient lives on, one can almost with certainty expect a certain deterioration of the character, insomuch as the superior and most essential part of the soul has already left. Such an experience denotes a partial death. It is, of course, a most aggravating experience for the environment, as a person whose personality is so well known seems to lose it completely and shows nothing more than demoralization. But it is the lower man that keeps on living with the body, and who is nothing else but the life of the body. Jung's remark is similar to the Chinese description of the separation of the Hun and Po at death. He continues, With old people, or with persons seriously ill, it often happens that they have peculiar states of withdrawal or absent-mindedness, which they themselves cannot explain, but which are presumably conditions in which the detachment takes place. It is sometimes a process that lasts very long. What is happening in such conditions one rarely has a chance to explore, but it seems to me that it is as if such conditions had an inner consciousness, which is so remote from our matter of fact consciousness, that it is almost impossible to retranslate its contents into the terms of our actual consciousness. I must say that I have had some experiences along that line they have given me a very different idea about what death means. End quote. I have also observed such psychic states in some people. In these cases, a second consciousness was often present, a superficial, everyday consciousness, which seemed to have no notion of impending death, and even made mundane future plans, and a deeper, more serious consciousness, which broke through from time to time, with casual remarks which made clear that the dying person was well aware of the impending end and was preparing himself for it. This, quote, deeper consciousness, belongs presumably to the self, which is partially out of time and space, and it is therefore that part of man which survives death. The Chinese Po, the body-bound life force, maintains a kind of impersonal inheritance One could also say it has, quote, complexes, which do not belong just to the individual. Jung writes in a letter, quote, Our life is not made entirely by ourselves. The main bulk of it is brought into existence out of sources that are hidden to us. Even complexes can start a century or more before a man is born. There is something like karma, end quote. The ancient Chinese expressed this insight in the following way. The body-soul elements of the vegetative Po are dispersed and are ready for a new existence. They enter into the soul of the land, a kind of life reservoir from which the ancestors emerged and from which the grandchildren will arise again, that is, into the collective unconscious. Chosen people, however, instead of falling into this dispersion, are able to become a shin, an agent of divinity, and no longer have to return. These are the people who, through meditation, have brought their entelechy to a continuous, quote, circle of light. The famous Taoistic alchemical text, The Secret of the Golden Flower, refers to this great work. The analogy to Western alchemy and to the Egyptian cult of the dead is obvious. A spiritual opus is needed by man in order to produce a resurrection body. In Buddhism, the diamond body. First of all, we must return to the duality of the Hun and Po. The task of the Taoistic alchemical opus, or of this kind of meditation, is not to suppress the thoughts of the Po, which belong to the female yin principle, but rather to transform them into thoughts of the Hun, yang. These thoughts of the yin are distinctive, discriminating. They have their source in a consciousness that has turned to the outer world. Only after their transformation do they also become rooted in the creative, harmonious principle of the universe, in Tao. Consciousness that has been transformed in this way is also referred to as a, quote, holy embryo. It is the Dharma body, a form of higher consciousness. The Po is that ego which still hopes, desires, wishes, and experiences fear, and thus lets the life energy, Chi, flow outward. It corresponds to an everyday ego that has not been purified. The work consists in its transformation into an interiorized spiritual consciousness. This is the fruit which is being preserved after the destruction of the body in death, the quote, one grain of corn. Accordingly, therefore, this body which survives death would, in psychological terms, be made up of everything from the collective unconscious which the individual had, in life, brought into consciousness. That which our everyday ego thinks, does, feels, etc. throughout the day escapes into the outer world and finally gets lost there. But when something meaningful which can be recognized by means of a strong emotion, breaks into our life, then there is a chance for us to make its archetypal, that is, spiritual, meaning conscious. In this way, a piece of something eternal and infinite is realized in our earthly existence. And that means, in a literal sense, that it has become real. So affects and emotions which belong to the body-soul should not be repressed, and overcome, as some Christian teachings advise. One should confront them in oneself and search for the deeper meanings behind their exterior expressions of desiring and willing to act. Usually this confrontation does not end without a struggle, for it is in the nature of affects to seduce us into impulsive actions or to hold us tenaciously in the circumstances placed before us in the outer world. To concentrate instead on the deeper meaning of such impulses requires a conscious decision, a turning back or confrontation with one's own emotions. This in the last analysis is the meaning of the cross in Christianity or of the crucifixion, complete endurance of the conflict between violent emotions and their spiritual meaning. This spiritual meaning, however, reveals itself only when one confronts the conflict without reservation. Then there occurs, one cannot make it happen, a transformation that leads to the union of the opposites, and out of that union, the glorified body apparently emerges that survives death and that the alchemists call their, quote, stone. Okay, so... There's a couple of reasons I wanted to share that. Not only because uh, she mentions the Chinese conceptions of, oh, uh, well, at least in Chinese alchemy, the conceptions of the split between the uh, body-soul and the more, I don't know, spirit, which I think is uh, useful to have something to point to, uh, especially in a, a near-death experience like this where where we, we have essentially two a split in the, in the person where there's Ching uh, Guan was floating above herself and also at the same time seeing herself uh, you know, struggling to, to breathe. And that's a very interesting phenomenon that, that uh, you know, requires elucidation and, and see if we can find parallels. So I, I was very happy to, to have found that uh, passage which describes this split. And apparently there are other parallels in other mythologies and and cultures. Like, for instance, in the uh, Egyptian uh, kind of religious beliefs, there's the difference between between the uh, Ba and Ka soul, which um, one being more eternal than the other and more, uh, I, I guess, spiritualized, the other one referring more to the body so I, I thought that this would be useful to share and, and at the same time uh, I read a bit more than than maybe I could have if I was just giving a description of this phenomenon because she goes on to talk about what what these different religions and and cultures and um, uh, traditions thought about this split between the the body and 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 the soul, and the split between these consciousnesses, and and this solution ends up being in in these alchemical traditions, and and things like the Egyptian death rituals, is to during life to form a afterlife body. At least that's what the the I guess religious ideas suggest. And uh, Dr. von Franz takes this as the um I guess the tension of opposites between the body and the soul and and making the body's desires and impulses spiritualized or or understanding the spiritual meaning behind one's desires if, if you're feeling drawn out into the world to be to interact with something or do something impulsive it's uh, she recommends that that part of Integrating consciousness and and integrating the self is to understand the spiritual meaning behind that. Why are you feeling drawn to this? Why? What is? What are you trying to act out in the world? That what is the spiritual meaning behind it? And that on the other side of the the coin is the the making concrete of of spiritual uh, wisdom. You know, we we learn all these different things. We read. You know, stories and we have religions and and we believe things and and to make them concrete in one's life is to, you know, bring the spirit into to being, so to speak, into matter. And so the tension between these two two functions is is very difficult. and that's what she describes as as a one of the possible meanings of the crucifixion is to be, um, you know, hung between, these opposing ideas, and and it's a struggle, and it's a conscious turn inward. So I found that very use useful, and especially with things going on in my life right now. But um, it's just very fascinating that there are all these parallels that that lead to such fertile ground for us to you know discuss and think about. So okay, so I guess we'll. Get back to Chingguan's experience and, and trying to understand it. So she, once she's in the hospital, she begins having a, a second out of body experience, and in this case, she she uh, says that she's shapeless, so she's kind of without form, I suppose, and she still has all of her senses, and she can she has the typical experience of seeing her body below her and kind of feeling indifferent towards it. That's very, very common. Almost all near-death experiences have some kind of sentiment in that regard. Uh, and she also, I guess, hears things that the doctors are saying that could be used to verify her experience in some way, at least personally for her um, and, and other people who were there. If, if she were to pursue that, and and then so she starts floating upwards, and she thinks she's going to hit the ceiling, and she passes through the ceiling and finds herself above a giant, endless ocean. And I I found the way she described this ocean very interesting, and and part of that uh, is coming from the probably the translation to the the way she describes it is a little different, and so that might be useful for us just to uh, to use different words to look at at um, a phenomenon. It kind of gives a different angle to it, even though this is a translation. But So she describes it as subtle, rational, and emotionless. It's immense, extensive emptiness and still. So it, it seems as though it has some kind of Consciousness to it, but because she says it's rational, but it's also seems kind of just, just kind of indifferent. I suppose just kind of there, not a uh, particularly you know uh, doesn't have a, a personality or, or anything to it. It's just kind of is, uh, just being itself. It's, it's still and. And so she she is floating above it, and it's it sounds very kind of serene and calm at least from the way she describes it. So I guess we can discuss this idea of, of the ocean and and I, I don't know how thorough we're going to be able to, to be. I mean the the ocean is is pretty ubiquitous symbol for for lots of different things. so I guess the first. Thing we could talk about is that how often the ocean is is kind of referred to as as kind of it it has a natural parallel to uh, to death, I suppose, or or the afterlife or something. It's you know the usual metaphor is that uh, life is a river flowing, and all rivers flow into the ocean, and that's the return to oneness, the return to God, the return to the divine realm. So that's that's kind of the obvious uh, place to start. And, you know, we could, <laughs> we could go, go off in, in a, kind of a thousand different directions. I'll read a couple things, but, um, you know, one thing that if, if you were interested in, in some of the water type of symbolism going, if you went back to the shared death experience episode, we talked a lot about water um but really it, it's kind of hard because you don't know whether there are personal associations for her to the to the ocean whether there are cultural associations that the chinese um have with the ocean or the sea um you know with the we don't have a whole lot to go on or if it's at the deepest level it's just the human associations and that's so that's kind of all that we can really Talk about and and really, you know, another thing that this brings up is is what we talked about in the last episode with Richard, is the is the uh, reading I did from uh, Marie Louise von Franz um, from her book Alchemy on the uh, why why someone might see the divine as a person and why someone might see it as. A, a natural force, uh, you know, a force of nature, a light, of a fire, or what have you. So in this case, you know, there's no real answer to that question. It was just kind of a she was looking at the implications of it and and how it could could be um, a, uh, a difference in in one's ability to relate or to communicate, or to truly, you know, um, have a connection with the divine, I suppose. Or, or to, you know, be having something more personable, something a- that you're able to talk to a person rather than an ocean. Um, now, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I'm not sure that always works out in in near-death experiences that you know, oftentimes it seems like the, the light or something can communicate in one way or another, although it may be in a somewhat abstract or inexpressible sort of way. Um, so, again, I'm not entirely sure that this, that idea holds up, but in this case, it, it certainly does, because uh, Qingguan doesn't have any communication with this this ocean, it's kind of just... The way she describes it, it's just kind of a, a stillness of, of her being at peace around it and, and not, you know, having any conversation or anything. And so it is very interesting, and and I think the the question of why is something that is, is unanswerable, frankly. Uh, the best I can do is to say that it depends on the individual and their... Um, build up of their experiences throughout their life and and their worldview and how they relate to being itself, I suppose. And that's something that isn't entirely conscious, that I think a lot of that is unconscious and you know, it it expresses itself unconsciously. Like I've said many times, it's not like people choose their the content of their NDE. It seems like they can alter some things if if they're given the chance in, in the moment, but for the most part, this is an autonomous experience that that happens automatically without one's doing per se. So, you know, this is a a very interesting kind of area to think about, and and I want to continue to to see how you know near death experiences fit in with that. The the difference between the personified deity. Uh, being of light, the Christ figure, um, just someone that could, you know, you can talk to and 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 relate with, and versus something that's a little more um, removed and and awe-inspiring and and kind of just um, still and and she describes it as emptiness too, which is a, a kind of a different way from what we're usually used to hearing and i think it's it's due to the um, the again the play of opposites that uh, you know it back in furs near death experiences she she kind of talked about it uh, as as being a a uh, emptiness and fullness at the same time that that god is is both empty and full and and has this in uh, this entire totality um, that transcends these these opposites, which we find very difficult. So um, that was just a very very fascinating way of describing it, and and all of her description is is interesting. Honestly, it's I I really wish that I could could speak Chinese or, or to read it to to really dive into it because I'm sure it there are a lot more threads to connect um, if. If you know you could read it in in the native kind of language that it was intended to be um, taken down in. so but there were a couple things that that I thought I could share about the ocean, at least, which you know might just add a little bit to to what we can understand from it. So the first is just kind of an overview of the symbolism of the of the sea the ocean. Symbolically, the sea has long been perceived as a hostile and dangerous environment populated by fantastic creatures, the gigantic leviathan of the Bible, the shark-like Isonade in Japanese mythology, and the ship-swallowing kraken of late Norse mythology. The Greek mythology of the sea includes a complex pantheon of gods and other supernatural creatures. And here they go into all the different gods and beings in the sea in Greek. In Southeast Asia, the importance of the sea gave rise to many myths of epic ocean voyages, princesses on distant islands, monsters and magical fish lurking in the deep. In Northern Europe, kings were sometimes given ship burials, where the body was laid in a vessel surrounded by treasure and costly cargo and set adrift on the sea. In North America, various creation stories have a duck or other creature dive to the bottom of the sea and bring up some mud out of which the dry land is formed. Adar goddess was a Syrian deity known as the mermaid goddess, and Sedna was the goddess of the sea and marine animals in Inuit mythology. In Norse mythology, Aegir was the sea god, and Ran, his wife, was the sea goddess, while Nojor, was the god of the sea travel. It was best to propitiate the gods before setting out on a voyage. In the works of psychiatrist Carl Jung, the sea symbolizes the personal and the collective unconscious and in dream interpretation. Okay, so that is just some, I guess, idea of the ubiquity of, of, of the importance of the sea. And... The the last bit uh, mentioning Jung, I think, can be very useful for us to when we're looking at something like this of understanding what what this image can be. You know, all of these just from that brief description, you have monsters, you have life itself, you have all this different stuff, this fantastic stuff that comes out of the sea, and. Uh, from the union perspective, that would refer to just the collective unconscious of mankind out of which consciousness arose and out of which all of these um, various beings and symbols and myths arose as well and, and arose out on their own accord too, not necessarily as, as inventions but as experiences of people and dreams and, and um, getting coded into cultural traditions. And continue with their own kind of um, path. So, I think this is, you know, a a very (laughs) interesting image for for one to to come across at the end of one's life, and it it really is that metaphor of returning to the oneness, to the the place of the origin of all all life, so to speak. I mean, even you know, I don't want to equivocate here or you know draw too too strong a parallel but I mean even scientifically we life emerged out of the sea um, and so it it clearly has a very central place in you know, mankind's being and in addition to that I, I think it's just you know the almost one of the perfect symbols to to use for the Afterlife, or, or the uh, return home to, to the divine or, or to the source of life. You know, it's, it's a very appropriate. And, you know, I th- it could be something very useful to talk about just the, the idea of a symbol and what it does. You know, it's different from a sign. A sign means something like, you know, a... Uh, the word cat is is a sign for for the furry four-legged feline creature that lives in our houses and elsewhere but a a symbol negotiates between something that is more than just one thing it's it, it it's the mediator between us and the infinite you know it's so difficult to talk about these these sorts of things sometimes because there's so many different meanings that can can you know come out of an image like the the ocean or the sea a true symbol mediates between us and something that is infinitely <laughs> complex and combinatorially explosive in its its kind of scope uh, i mean you could probably describe it as a mediator between man and the divine in a way, that symbols and metaphors are our way of of relating to something that is beyond us. And that's why they're so important. And, you know, we incorporate them into our daily language even when we don't know that we're doing it. So the, the choice of which symbol one encounters in a near-death experience or or how how the experience manifests itself and what form and shape and kind of tone that it takes is all individual and and obviously is something unconsciously created by an interaction between the individual and and whatever force or <laughs> Um, consciousness e- exists beyond us. You know, you can call that God or or the divine or the sacred. You know, you could use a lot of different kind of ways of of describing it, and and that's you know how it should be. It's something extremely um, profound and almost inexpressible, as as we can see from from trying to read people who are. Who are uh, you know trying to express it? You know there is always this sentiment in near-death experiences that it's very hard to to capture in words, and that makes perfect sense to me. That it it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to to talk about it and use our limited human language to to express something that is so inexpressible and powerful and um, beyond us. Um, so there's. One other uh, association that I thought might be useful to bring up, um, let me bring it up here. It was just something that I found kind of interesting, and I I really don't know because I I know close to nothing about Chinese culture how important this is, but you know it could just be something that certain <laughs> uh, Chinese literature references or. or you know, it not, might not be something that is widely known or widely thought of at all. So, you know, I'll take this with a grain of salt. It was just that the, um, I, I found out that the China kind of defined itself, or at least at some point, by its being contained in four different seas. Uh, it says that the four seas were four bodies of water. That metaphorically made up the boundaries of ancient China. The sea for each, this, there is a sea for each of the four cardinal directions. The West Sea is Qinghai Lake. The East Sea is the East China Sea. The North Sea is Lake Baikal, and the South Sea is the South China Sea. Two of the seas were symbolic until they were tied to a genuine locations during the Han Dynasty's wars with the Zhonggu. The lands within the four seas, a literary name for China, are alluded to in Chinese literature and poetry. Okay, so like I said, I don't know how ubiquitous and well-known this uh, metaphor is as as China being the land between these these different bodies of water, these different oceans, and, and whether that's something that people relate to. But I just found it interesting that in this case that the the oceans represent the boundaries of, of what is known, so to speak, and, and really that ties into you know um, everything that that we had talked about previously with just the ocean being this kind of <laughs> uh, mysterious source of life that out of which things have emerged, and it would make sense that it is the the boundary between. Um, you know the next next life, or or a um, primary image of the next life. So, you know it's it's very difficult to talk about, like I said, because you could I don't know talk for like twelve hours about all the different cultural and mythological and traditional ideas that people have about the sea, and and if you really wanted to know how this. This image, this symbol Manifests in, in The psyches of humanity I mean that's what you'd have to do And so I, I really can't Do a very exhaustive Job with this only to point out That it is something that is um, A very powerful symbol In, in representing um, what, what We emerged out of and, and perhaps what we go back to In this case And so Shengguan uh, is is called across the ocean by her mother, and and returns first to this kind of uh, formless, misty kind of place. I thought it was very interesting. You know, she was she was in this kind of foggy, foggy kind of misty, cloudy type of place, and she felt very calm and comforted. And she even, you know, sat down and laid down, and it felt like she was on a, a chaise lounge, which I thought was uh, an interesting detail. But uh, another interesting detail that I, I that stood out to me was the fact that she she described it as edgeless, which you know kind of might give us some idea into what this experience is like. You know, one thing I think that that is pretty defining of consciousness is its emphasis on straight edges and and uh, kind of a very uh, uh, sharpness to it. And it seems like in this other realm that Ching Guan was in and, and perhaps others that we've discussed, that there's a kind of a blurriness or a softness to things, that there's not this harsh kind of sharpness of consciousness and and separation between things but it's it's a little more smooth and and flowing together so to speak so I, I I found that very interesting and and also the as she's laying down her description of the music being so beautiful and and that's something that that always interests me as as a musician that um, the way people describe this amazing music. And there's even a bit that it seemed like almost kind of a Synesthesia Is that how you say it? She had mentioned that there were kind of these, she was enjoying these harmonic colors that were kind of flowing over her, so to speak. Uh, its warmth embraced thousands, thousands of staggering layers of our harmonic colors. And she became deeply immersed in, in all of this. But it, something interesting that, that we can point out here is uh, her kind of caveat to this. <laughs> she says, However, when it came to the blissfulness, yet it was not quite as you thought about it, because it had a magnificent and soft and easy vibe. Additionally, it felt like you were soaked in an aroma wine, sunken, 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 that I never wanted to get up and leave. No time and space, no exuberances, no worrisome, Thoughtless, no right and wrong, only the unlimited expansion and euphoria. So it kind of sounds almost like a sort of unconsciousness, maybe, or, or something that is very, I, I don't know, engrossing, and, and it takes you beyond all the, the cares and the, well, perhaps the, the sharp lines of, of consciousness, like we were talking about a, a little bit ago. She says that there's no time or space, there's no worries, no thoughts, there's no right and wrong. There's only unlimited expansion and euphoria, as she says. So I think that coheres quite, uh, quite well with some of the other experiences that we've, we've been through. And I think it, it seems like quite a good description, just uh, in slightly different words, which I, I quite enjoy for instance the the idea of of it being beyond right and wrong i think that kind of lines up with just the last episode that we did in uh, richard's near death experience in which he was hanging out <laughs> hanging out with uh, a group of souls that included both his friends and enemies which is kind of a very <laughs> very strange idea that that uh, for some reason that this state of being, the state of, of the afterlife of of the next life has this kind of beyondness to it that includes, um, to some degree, something beyond perhaps our, our uh, more common ideas about morality and ethics and stuff like that. Um, and that's not to say that we shouldn't take those seriously, though, um, because it seems as though... <laughs> It seems as though that uh we reap what we sow, and that any pain that we cause comes back to us so uh after having this experience, it seems like she she had the the trapdoor pulled out from under her and and she was laying back in this chair or this i don't know lounge in this kind of uh you know foggy realm, and suddenly she's plunging down uh through the clouds through these these layers of of different clouds and going going back to her body and and she repeats many times that she doesn't want to go back and she at a certain point realizes that it's irreversible that she's going back to her body but she still has one last uh, glimpse of the ocean before before going back and it seems though as though she it was her mom that that I guess brings her back. She says that uh, it was her mom's strong will that um, her soul comes back and came back alive. Um, she says the forceful descent was due to mom's persevering determination to pervade. If It was not for her crazy pers- persistence calling out my name. I probably would stay in that other realm. So it seems as though she uh, attributes her coming back to the will of her mom um, and the love of her mom, I suppose, which is very interesting. And and then, uh, just to kind of bring it all back to this central image, she ends by talking about uh, how much the the ocean meant to her. And it seems that she had some kind of spiritual experience yet again in, in 2012 that had to do with with the ocean, which kind of continues that theme. Uh, we don't know what that is, but it's interesting nonetheless. And, and she kind of <laughs> confirmed some of the, the ideas that we had talked about earlier in that um, as, she, as she wraps up her story, um, she says that as I learned more about consciousness, I had come to understand that the ocean is a metaphor. Uh, a metaphor, not a metaphor. A metaphor. We are in an ocean of consciousness, so I think that, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what that means, but I think that gels quite nicely with some of the ideas that we had dis- discussed before, and even the idea of, of the ocean representing a kind of collective unconscious in, in the Jungian sense as well, just this source out of which our, our consciousness has arisen and um, the place that it returns to when, when our lives are through. Now, to save you a, uh, an, a very strange Google search, uh, I could not find what she was referring to with uh, the last line of her story. Um, she said, uh, the ocean that which the ancients named it, the Sea of Sex. If any of you all speak Chinese or, or know what that means, please let me know because I <laughs> tried to look for it and... Fortunately, could not find anything that would be uh, useful for our purposes. Um, but, you know, all kidding aside, if that is something, I mean, something serious and not, well, it seems as it's as if it's something serious, like a, an actual, some kind of idea or, or image in, in Chinese culture. And I would suppose that this ocean of consciousness being a sea of sex that might refer to the um, it's, you know, a body in which the, perhaps if we're talking about sex symbolically, that, uh, is a bringing together of, of, uh, the opposites of a union of, of different things and, and, and one kind of image in one body. Um, so I, like I said, if, if any of you all know what that refers to, I would love to find out, but I could not find it. Um, so I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. I just it was absolutely fascinating to to get to to read this and like I said I wish I had more information and it's clearly a very rich story um full of uh very interesting details and and ones that you might not expect uh certain words and phrases and so I hope you all enjoyed uh hearing about it and uh, very, uh, I'm very grateful to Chengguan for wanting to, to share it. So that will wrap it up for today. Uh, if you would like to uh, reach me, you can send me an email at samreedsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. Uh, you can send me a message on, on the Facebook page. And uh, if you enjoyed listening to this and the other episodes, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes because that just really, really helps us out, and I'd really appreciate it. Um, so now we will wrap up with a quote on death. Okay, so I thought we would end with a quote by Lao Tzu, the uh, Chinese philosopher and, and founder of, of uh, Taoism and uh, author of the Tao Te Ching. Um, and again, <laughs> this is a, a quote on death that, I don't know where it's coming from. I hope it's not made up on the internet, but um, I hope it's real. So um, I I enjoyed it nonetheless, and I thought it was very, uh, very wise. Life and death are one thread, the same line viewed from different sides.